This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right. So one of the most read stories of the day today as well, Carol Masser, is about loosening up and specifically Treasury Secretary, excuse me, Stephen Mnuchin, a familiar name to Wall Street in his current job and in his previous job. He's talking about looser rules, uh, maybe playing to the Wall Street audience in a lot of ways. Alex Harris here with us, Bond reporter. And what was funny is she walked into the studio and said, We've been talking about this for quite some time, and we have oftentimes at the top of our three o'clock Wall Street time hour. Alex is with us, and we've been talking about this repo issue, and now some regulatory relief or at least action. What's going on? I think there's just this opens the door to more serious discussion about it. And I was saying earlier to someone, I. I'd expect that this question might actually come up at the press conference tomorrow with Jerome Powell because, again, the banks have multiple regulators here between the OCC, the Fed, and the FDIC. So take us back to the very basics. What's the concern? What are the current rules and what's being proposed? So post-financial crisis, you had these Basel III financial regulations, and it was geared towards capital and liquidity requirements um, and making sure that the banks were adequately capitalized in the wake of the financial crisis. Um, So this is where you get these things like liquidity coverage ratio and and, and making sure that they have enough cash or liquid assets on hand to cover like 30 a month worth of outflows. Um, You know, so these rules went into effect, and they have been in effect. And the idea is that maybe things are a little too tight, and this is part of what contributed to the tightness in the repo market, or at least uh, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon would have you believe that because right. he made those comments during their earnings call saying, well, we would have been in the market, but you know, we had all this cash tied up for these regulatory requirements that we couldn't move. Is he right? I think maybe to some extent he could be. You know, I, I think... Because I think there was an understanding or feeling that, yep, after the financial crisis, we were going to tighten yeah. tighten rules and restrictions a lot because of what happened, and rightfully yeah. so. But everyone said, you know, the pendulum swings one way to the extreme and then back the other way to the extreme, and then at some point it settles. It settles. So is this what's happening and what should be happening? I think it should be, and this is the thing. is, And, you know, I heard uh, former Fed Governor Randy Krosner speak on this a few years ago in saying that, like, at the five-year mark, you need to look at the, fi- at the financial regulations, and you need to actually take a serious Mm -hmm. look at what they're doing to the markets and what they're doing to the structure of these markets because they have changed the way the repo market dynamic you know it has changed the dynamic of that market and they are worth looking and reconsidering you know what's too tight because to me it also felt like you know Basel was sort of your baseline and then the various regulators across you know the regions could add more regulations and you know and that's what you got a little bit in the U.S. with a you know you have something mm-hmm. called the supplementary leverage ratio so it's on top of that so it is time to take a look and saying you know yes you know there's all this liquidity slashing around the system but is it really moving at its most efficient points and and that's sort of the problem but I also think that this this opens up sort of like this blame game you know right. where you're starting starting to see people go, oh, well, this is this person's fault or this entity's fault. And I think there's a lot of blame to go around here because I think, yes, it is somewhat the regulators needing to take a 
you know, a closer look at, at the reforms that have been installed post-financial crisis. But I think this is also a treasury problem and their lack of acknowledgement that there's a lot of debt coming. And we've talked about this and, yeah. and less foreign interest in our debt. And so that's a problem as well. And then you have the Fed. And, and I think they're also culpable and not quite understanding how the reserves are working in the system and whether or not they have enough and how they're they're measuring whether or not there are enough reserves in the system. So I think there's a lot of responsibility to be shared here. Well, and we should also note, because everything, it seems, we were just talking about this a few minutes ago, comes back to politics these days. This is exactly what Elizabeth Warren was worried about happening when this whole repo mess came up. And we should note, Elizabeth Warren knows what she's talking about when it comes to financial markets. She has been a strong uh, advocate like it or not, however you fall on the spectrum, it's the reason why the consumer financial protection exactly. board was created yeah. after the crisis. And this is exactly what she said. She actually called Stephen Mnuchin out by name and said, "Don't use this as an excuse to loosen these rules." No, absolutely. But I do think there is a difference between overregulation and smart regulation, right. and that's what Fair. we need to be examining: is whether or not, like, are we at that point where this is all smart regulation, or are we a little too overregulated here? Because I do think that there's a difference. All right. So I think that's a great point. So what about the process what happens if there is a change what's involved who weighs in on it how quickly can it happen i mean again this is this is every i mean you have the office of the comptroller of the currency you have the fdic you have the fed you know are the three primary regulators for these large banks i think you're going to have basel you know you're going to have the bis weighing in on this as well because again like basel is global regulations sure. and you know That's but i think like these these additional regulations that were implemented by the us regulators they're going to have to sit down and examine them. I think, you know, this is where Steve Mnuchin and the FSOC come in and figuring out. What's oh, FSOC? It is the Financial Stability Oversight. Oh, for, yeah. yeah. So, you know, and he chairs that. So I think that's going to be something. But I think also, again, Elizabeth Warren, yes, she knows regulation. And so her letter was very much coming from a senatorial yeah. position. But there's also Elizabeth Warren, the presidential candidate. Right. And point. that's a, this is an important point because I think, that the candidate is asking the treasury secretary well is this a debt problem like are we overburdened because she's got a lot of plans for spending and it's going to cost a lot of money right. and so she's got to wonder well if it is in fact a debt problem then oh my gosh if i, I might have to president re- yeah yeah i I'm, have to rethink this because the market's already having a hard time digesting all the debt we have so glad we have you to explain all this. i know thank really, goodness really. thank goodness for alex harris bond reporter for bloomberg here in our bloomberg interactive broker studio you can often catch her talking at the top of the three, but a special appearance today, talking about a big (laughs) Bloomberg scoop. SGI, U.S. large cap equity fund, may be just what you need. It's beating just about all of its peers in the past five years, returning 11% annually on average. The fund's portfolio manager, Dave Harden, he is chief investment officer of Summit Global Investments. The firm has approximately $575 million in assets under management based in Salt Lake City in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio right here in New York City. Uh, nice to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. It's glad to be here, for Good. sure. Um, nice fund performance. Remind everybody a little bit about the strategy here. Absolutely. This is a large cap U.S., as you mentioned. It's a strategy. What we're doing is we're investing in outstanding companies and trying to avoid those companies that have a lot of surprises. Outstanding. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> outstanding. Doesn't sound like, outstanding doesn't sound like an algorithm to me. Well, this is, you know, part of our DNA is that from day one, we've, we've tried to avoid companies 
that get in trouble with social, environmental, and governance issues. And so because of that, we tend to be in companies that are more, uh, both from a risk perspective and a return perspective, that's where I say outstanding, thus the, you know, the five stars on the large cap fund here from Morningstar. But, um, you know, we are in very good quality companies and, and not just quality. I mean, we have uh, our quantitative metrics go across all sorts of factors. So we're talking here growth factors and value factors and risk factors, all combining to, to, to produce what we feel is a very good um, uh, risk and return play. But then we, we, we kind of overlay that with a risk um, from a fundamental perspective. And this is where we dig into the company. We dig into the red flags. We dig into the governance and say, is this worth owning? And instead of looking for like the next buy, the best opportunity, what we're looking for is that downside risk. Right. Mm -hmm. And if we can avoid that downside risk, I think that's where you really make money in the stock market is by not losing, right? The tide's going to raise agree. all the boats. I don't think we spend enough time about <laughs> kind of, you know, shoring up your current position right. or turn or gains and uh, so, versus new ones. And so you end up with names that are well-known to people. Let's talk about Microsoft. You know, okay. that's a name that we've been, I think, looking at with mm -hmm. some appreciation, pun intended, uh, for the last couple <laughs> of years as they really have transformed that company. Satya Nadella gets a lot of accolades including the cover of Bloomberg Business Week not too long ago, for what feels like a little bit of a turnaround. What do you see there? How does it fit into the uh, parameters that you described? Well, this is a company that was, you know, a little bit late to the game in the cloud computing, right? But their strategy is working. They're doing very well. Their execution's very well. So management's doing a good job. Credit to them. They have $133 billion in cash on their balance books, right? So when we say outstanding, this is a company, it doesn't matter what cycle in the business cycle we're in. A lot of people, late cycle, you know, where we're going to have a recession. We have all these things hitting. But Microsoft continues to perform well, right? We're using Word. We're using Excel. We're using the cloud. So it's something that I think that's integrated into society enough mm. to where it's more of this bellwether that's going to do well. It has a good yield, hitting a new 52-week high, great numbers. You know, I think Microsoft's a good play. So tell us a little bit about ZTS, which is up about 48% so far this year. Got a little bit of a dividend there, but nice dividend growth. Um, That's a it, pet business, right? That's right. So, you know, where that was the spinoff from, was it Pfizer? It or, or, no, no, no. It was from, uh, ba, 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 I can't think of it. <laughs> right? That's, it, it was a spinoff. But here's, here's the thing about it, right? Is that where pharmaceuticals went to the dogs, that's where all the money's at, uh. right? You and I, I mean, there's no way my kids would let me spend less money on my dog, right? And so it's, it's, I think it's uh, recession-proof. I think they're growing their earnings. Their cash is up 14% year over year. Their chart's amazing. They have a fantastic management staff. And this is a company that's really doing great things for pets and livestock and, in other words, animals. And so unlike the regular biotech that's getting legislated or getting, yeah. getting attacked on, front, you know, on their left and on the right, these guys aren't. Well, remember in Points week, to you, Pfizer. Yeah, Pfizer. That's what I thought was the spinoff. But, you know, remember we talked to Mars, uh, Joel Weber yep. talked to Mars, obviously family-owned candy business, but they're also getting... I believe Smucker is going there the as pet, well. Into the yeah. pet yeah. industry sure. as well. Sure. There's competition, for sure. But they're there. 
They've been doing it a long time. They yeah. have excellent qualified people as well. And when you do all the checks for like, what are they doing? Are they doing anything wrong? Is there anything that could surprise us on the future? And you can't find anything. Right. And, and that's what I like. Did you proof that they are pretty c- considered pretty much? Res- I mean, I know well, my dog probably would get every, you know, get the last exactly, morsel yeah. at Just home. Just ask what you would spend for your pet <laughs> or if you've already spent it. You're yeah. like, dang, that was a lot. We all want to be scout when we grow up just for the so boat true. trips in the summer. All right, Dave Harden, uh, Chief Investment Officer at Summit Global Investments, founder of the firm. They're looking after about $575 million. He's based out in Salt Lake City here with us in New York City today. It's the day for the wearing of the green. It's a great day. All right. Day the All right, then. Yes, I guess every day is wearing the green to some extent when you're Irish like I am and or more. Or business network. Oh, exactly. <laughs> or more Irish as is uh, Martin Shanahan. He is the CEO of IDA Ireland. Back with us based over in Dublin here in New York City today. All over the world, it sounds like, based on the discussion we were having before we came on air. Great to have you back. Nice to be here, guys. All right. So a very timely visit, to say the least, because we're all still, 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 still uh, captivated by what's going on with Brexit. Bring us up to date, because obviously there's a political aspect to this, which your prime minister, your Taoiseach, has been uh, handling uh, ably, I think, by uh, most accounts. But economically, what has it meant and what will it mean going forward for Ireland? So I think, uh, you know, since the Brexit referendum, what it has meant largely for business is uncertainty. Uh, I think for a lot of the investors I speak to, it has meant uh, cost and disruption. Many of those uh, companies have now made, I think, their post-Brexit plans, whenever post-Brexit is, uh, they have... uh, transferred functions into Europe. Uh, A lot of those functions have come to Ireland, thankfully, uh, particularly in financial services, but anything that's touched by regulation, also pharmaceuticals, uh, medical technologies, and and so on. Uh, Many of them have adjusted their supply chains, they've adjusted their logistics. Yeah, I I think in many cases, certainly those which faced uh, an existential threat in the sense that they couldn't trade into Europe if Brexit had happened. So financial services, certainly, if you need qualified person sign off in the pharma sector, yet they've made those moves already. If you're adjusting your uh, supply chain, in some cases, I think companies are holding off because just the sheer cost of doing that, uh, they're going to wait until maybe the last minute to press the button on that. But they have their plans well in place. So we estimate that about 80 companies have identifiably already moved to Ireland because of um, Brexit. Um, And uh, my my sense is that we've seen a, a lot of the preparation work done at this point. Uh, are they are we, smaller companies, large companies? Who are they? Uh, uh, right across the board. So you have companies like Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, companies like um, Barclays, uh, Standard and um, Poor's Global on the uh, uh, um, uh, rating side. We have accreditation bodies. Uh, you have a lot of um, financial services companies across the board that need uh, regulation mm-hmm. within Europe in order to service the European market. And so... Do you expect that once Brexit is done and dusted, or at least we have a set date, that you will see more sort of or people are sort of waiting in the wings to, to some extent? 
No, I, I think we've seen a lot of decisions okay. made at this point. Um, I, I think it depends on how exposed you are and, uh, you know, the um, nature of your uh, business model. Um, and then it depends on the nature of what the ultimate Brexit looks like and what a, a future sure. EU-UK trade deal looks like. So that's probably really what's going to prompt uh, potentially the, ne the next wave. But at the moment, as you know, we were expecting that in the next uh, couple of days we would uh, see the, um, you know, an, another Brexit milestone and we would get to the uh, negotiating the EU-UK trade deal. Uh, that's now not the case. Um, you know, there's an extension until at least the 31st of uh, January if there isn't, uh, if the current deal which has been agreed between the EU and UK isn't uh, ratified by Westminster between now and then. Martin, when you take a step back, can you, I don't know, do you have enough visibility to look, I don't know, two years, three years, five years down the road and let's assume Brexit does happen, although, you know, who knows what could surprise us, but ultimately what does it mean for your region? What does it mean for Europe as a whole? How do yeah, you see it? Yeah, I think there are a couple of things that we know. Um, you know, our view is, notwithstanding that we respect the will of the British people, that Brexit is bad for Ireland, it's bad for Europe, and it's bad for the UK. That's our, our, our perspective on it. Um, Europe is undoubtedly weakened without of without the UK. It's a big market. It's a very strong economic power. So if the UK is outside of Europe, it, it weakens the, the EU. Um, I think after that, it really depends on what the nature of a UK-EU trade deal looks like. From Ireland's perspective, we would like that relationship to be as close as possible. It can never be as close as the UK being a member of the EU, but that, that's certainly uh, as close as possible it is good for Ireland, that we believe is good for Europe and is good for um, the UK. So that's certainly, I think, what, what we will be striving for um, and what Ireland will be advocating for within the EU 27. So uh, taking a bit of a step back uh, and thinking about both your role there in Ireland, but also looking across Europe, what does the economy feel like at this point? We have a story in the magazine this yeah. week. It's about Christine Lagarde sort of taking over as the head of the ECB. And, and one of the things that this story puts forth is, you know, Europe, a, a little uncertain to say the least. Germany may already be in recession. How does Ireland feel right now from a corporate and from a consumer perspective? Well, I, I think, as you know, we've experienced extraordinarily strong growth. We, we um, you know, our recovery came quickly, yeah. uh, albeit that obviously that was on the back of making very difficult decisions and uh, austerity for the Irish people. But the recovery came quickly. The growth uh, has remained strong. It is very strong at the moment. Uh, we've seen a very significant inward investment. In fact, the, the past five years uh, have been the strongest FDI into Ireland that we've observed in the 70 years that for direct, investment, for direct investment that IDA has been doing this. We're, we're doing it 70 years this year. So all of that is really strong. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, uh, certainly if you look at the global scenario, um, all the predictions are for maybe suppressed growth. And that probably means suppressed FDI. So from my perspective, we're going to be uh, having to work harder to maintain the level of FDI uh, into Europe. I mean, one of the things that we are very anxious to communicate during my trip here this week, and we thought it probably would coincide with Brexit, was that Ireland remains open for business, that, you know, investors in Ireland have unfettered access to the European uh, Union. And, you know, Ireland remains, I think, extraordinarily stable uh, and and we're going to uh, you know we are being rewarded for that by investors confidence what's the surprise that you plan for um or the unknown i think the things that occupy my mind most at the moment probably uh you, you know a lot of people would presume probably brexit but brexit is somewhat of a known entity at this mm -hmm. perspective right. we obviously look at the economy in the u.s because the economy the uh, u.s is such a, a strong uh, provider of fdi in Ireland. but i think the um 
the impact of uh, AI, the impact of machine learning, um, the impact of robotics, and what the impact those technologies will have on the sectors we have in Ireland, how exposed they are, how do we get ahead of those technologies? That's really, really important from Can our I perspective. Can I just say that's a big part of what the magazine is yeah, about in go. terms of the new economy, the Bloomberg New Economy, is looking specifically at things like technology, innovation, robotics, AI, among other factors. Uh, we call them drivers and disruptors yeah. and how nations around the world are situated as a result of that. And if I recall, and we'll get into this in just a little bit, uh, Ireland, uh, ranks pretty highly, I believe, on the uh, on yeah. the driver's list. In any case, Martin what were, Shanahan. What were you going to say, just quickly? I, I was going to say that those things are going to transcend anything that's happening yeah. from a geopolitical perspective at the moment, so we really need to focus on those key drivers. All right, it's good tough. stuff. Martin Shanahan, CEO of IDA Ireland, based in Dublin, here with us in New York City. He thought he'd be here to talk up Ireland during Brexit, but we all know Brexit. Huh. Still not happening yet. Great to see you. I love Safe it when travels. You take a step back from something no, like Brexit, great. which I think is what everybody needs to do. And we are definitely taking a look at the world this week in the current uh, or upcoming issue, I should say. Of and it's wild. This week. And it's wild. Uh, this story, by the way, too, among our most read, it's all about tracking the forces that threaten the world's hottest economy. It's all part of the new economy issue of the magazine that will be out later this week. It also tees up the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, which will happen in a few weeks in Beijing. Let's get into it. Two individuals who will be there. Tom Orlick is chief economist of Bloomberg Economics, joining us from our 991 studio in the nation's capital. Joel Weber with us, Bloomberg Business Week editor with us as well in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Joel, let's talk though a little bit about the issue overall, because I do think, um, I love the stories there. It really does cast uh, a global perspective, and this story in particular really might surprise you in terms of some of the findings. Yeah, so we, we try and have a slightly different look and feel with this issue than we do at any other moment in the year. and. And part of that just speaks to uh, the event, and, and this issue um, comes out now, but the event isn't for a couple more weeks, so we, we kind of treat this as almost like a curtain raiser for everything. Yeah. A and it's a way of kind of like looking at the world through a slightly different window than I think we usually look at, which is basically like what the future of the world is going to look like when you look at um, where growth is going to come from. And, and, you know, the, the Tom Orlick production, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the drivers and disruptors, really speaks to this. Uh, and we kind of used it as our trade chapter in the book. And we have different chapters. And we look at governance and uh, fertility, of all things, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, immigration. So we tried to take some of these biggest themes that are really zeitgeisty and look at them sort of through a unique kind of business week lens. Tom's obviously got trade here covered, but some of these other ones, you know, it's this great little mix of, you look at some charts that are compelling next to as told to with characters, uh, next to data, it's, so it's like really this hodgepodge that gives you an appreciation for what the future's really gonna look yeah. like. So Tom, you in addition to kind of like looking at what the future looks like, you actually wrestled with the here and the now, I guess. Um, what, what was the, what, where did the, the, the the inspiration for the drivers and the disruptors idea come from? So the, the big idea for us, Joel, um, and this is in part part of the big idea behind the New Economy Forum as a whole, um, is the idea that the forces which are driving growth at a national and a global level have now changed. Um, 
And what that means is that for economies looking to succeed, looking to prosper, um, what drives competitiveness have also, has also changed. So there's a lot of indexes out there which look at how much R&D a country is doing, how skilled its workforce are, um, how much uh, high-quality infrastructure it has. Uh, and all of those things are important, and they're part of our Drivers and Disruptors Index. But what we're also trying to do, uh, and what I think makes us unique, is we're trying to gauge the competitiveness of economies uh, in the face of some of the really big challenges which are going to be facing the global economy in the next 10 to 20 years. Protectionism, the rise of the robots, the rise of the digital economy, climate change, um, and of course populism, um, which is disrupting the way government is done around the world. So one of the things that I found surprising, Tom, when you uh, when you put this ranking, which you know comes at the end of the story, and you have to hit the show more to get to the United States, what's going on with the United <laughs> States? So one of the really interesting things about what's going on in the U.S. right now is that there's this real sense of geopolitical rivalry, the U.S. versus China, who's going to own the global economy in the 21st century. Um, and the U.S. is coming at this rivalry through the lens of the trade war. Let's have a trade war with China. We don't want to, but we have to. And if we win that trade war, then everything will be okay and we'll be in control of the global economy for the next hundred years. The way China is thinking about this is, oh my goodness, we've got this trade war, we have to deal with it. But at the same time, we've got our domestic development strategy. So what you're seeing China do is continue investing in the skills of their workforce, continue investing in a research and development program, continue improving their infrastructure. And that's why in our index, one of the strange things and what you're alluding to there, Joel, is that on the drivers of growth, China's actually showing up as higher than the United States. Significantly higher. So in, in 30 seconds, Sweden, number one when it comes to drivers, why? Um, so the Scandinavian countries are getting a lot right. Um, they have high levels of education. They invest in innovation. They have efficient governments. They are open to trade and open to balance trade in a way which doesn't invite a protectionist response. That's why you're seeing countries like Sweden, Denmark, Norway outperform uh, in our index. Right. Well, it's really good. It's one of those things where you kind of go online and just lose yourself in it for a yeah, while. You start going totally. down uh, these little rabbit holes to understand what's underneath it all. Great. The, the visualizations yes. that complement the indexes that Tom and company made. It's, it's incredible. It's really smart. And Check it out says, online. Like, catching up is hard, to, hard yes. to do for, for nations. That, that's the you thought breaking up was hard to do. Catching, catching up. up. <laughs> it's <laughs> even <laughs> harder. Tom Orlick, Chief Economist for Bloomberg Economics, the architect of this great disruptors peace in the new economy issue and joel weber the editor of bloomberg business week they're both going to be in beijing i'm driving in my car i turn on the radio how about you let me drive oh no 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 who's gonna drive you home honey please i'll do the driving drive home excuse me i want to drive just drive baby it's the question that drives us.
This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it's time for the drive to the close. Carol Masser. All right, we're going to turn this car around. We're going to drive to the close right now. Got it? (laughs) It's that kind of a day. It is that kind of day. It really is. Eric Clark does know what he's getting himself into. He starts the vote on the amendment to change the date of the early election. We said that to each other, but we didn't say it on the air. Okay, so now we put it out on air. Just so everybody knows, we're watching Brexit again. We're watching actually the UK Parliament, uh, a feed that we've got, uh, and they are coming back. Into the parliament. So they're starting that vote. So we'll see. uh, We'll let you know as it develops. We'll let you know the latest and greatest on Brexit. Uh, For the moment, let's figure out what this guy is watching. This guy is Eric Clark, back with his portfolio manager for Rational Dynamic Brands Fund. He joins us on the phone from San Diego, where, as Carol pointed out, we will be next week for uh, the big Schwab conference. Uh, Eric, there now. Uh, So what are you seeing in the market today, Eric? And for the past week or so, it's been sort of a funky one to watch. We're on Fed Eve here. We're in the midst of earnings. Separate the signal for the noise here from the noise. What are you saying? Well, uh, hello, everybody. Hi. Maybe I'll see you next week uh, in San Diego. you know, I think uh, last time we were on, we talked about volatility being very spasmic, and I think that should continue. And, uh, it very, you know, we live in a very news-driven, algo-driven world. And so, you know, where the market has uh, kind of climbed that wall of worry with Brexit and tariffs and earnings and, and all those things, and we're at all-time highs. Uh, earnings are, for the most part, okay. I think year-over-year year has been, you know, a little bit of a tough comp, but, but we kind of knew that going in. And and so, you know, overall, I still think, you know, the consumer is still doing well. Uh, wage gains are good. The, uh, you know, interest rates have fallen to a, to such a degree that it's been pretty stimulative to the economy and to the wallet of the of the consumer. So from my perspective, from our space, we we kind of like where we're sitting with a lot of these great companies that are that are winning with consumers. But, you know, I, I don't have to play in the industrials if I don't want to. Hey, it's good. Eric, hold on a second, because we've got a lot of uh, news just crossing the Bloomberg terminal. Digital real, uh, Realty to acquire um, Interexion at $8.4 billion enterprise value. And I think more importantly right now, we're watching deal flow, but J&J coming out, and uh, this stock has been halted uh, because of uh, pending news. J&J saying tests confirm there is no asbestos in their baby powder. Uh, they say a new test from previously tested bottle found no asbestos, and these were new tests by the FDA specifically. Um, and I guess, you know, obviously this has been a concern. This has been the result of litigation uh, and some big judgments uh, against J&J. So that's a big, what we call a red sticky here at Bloomberg. J&J saying uh, that there are tests that have been done by the FDA that confirm that there's no asbestos in baby powder. We are waiting for this stock to reopen in terms of trading because it has been halted. So we're waiting uh, for some momentum uh, there. But the stock was just uh, flat prior to those headlines crossing. So we'll look for some more news on that, Jason. All right. So back to Eric Clark, Portfolio Manager at Rational Dynamic Brands Fund. So uh, let's talk some names here because obviously we have had uh, some volatility, as you say. J&J on your list? Yeah. What do you make of a a and j Do you follow them? Well, I follow them. We don't own them. We own them in Q4. It was a great defensive position, but... uh, I just didn't love a lot of the healthcare names, and I didn't love the headline risk. Right. And so we uh, we kind of avoided J and J. It'd be nice to see some of that headline risk 
you know, kind of removed Roll off, because yeah. it's a heck of a dividend grower for sure. Right. Uh, so what do you like? I mean, I'm looking at some of your top holdings. You know, one name that I know we've talked to you about before uh, is Lululemon. Uh, that's a name that continues to trend upward. I've looked into that name a fair amount. Uh, you still like that one here, even with the, the nice run up it's had? I still I still love Lulu. It's like the second inning for the Asian opportunity. Right. Um, it's not cheap, but it's you know it's not egregiously expensive either. I mean, it's like twenty two times earnings and and an enormous global opportunity. So to me, that's not so bad. Comps obviously get higher uh, and more difficult to beat, but uh, you know they, they they tend to be pretty sticky and stable, particularly through the holidays. So I'm not necessarily worried about them right now. And revenue growth for the last quarter, almost 23% year over year. It's hard to beat that. I mean, it's really impressive to see that kind of a number. Uh, And it's estimated, I think, uh, 18% for the current quarter. So yeah, that's impressive. Especially a decade, I believe, into being a public company. Yeah, exactly. so what other names are you finding interesting? I'm just looking at your portfolio. I mean, we always love Amazon, certainly one, um, Visa. These are ones that have certainly been in the uh, earnings uh, news as of late as well. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, I, I try to focus on, you know, things that have, you know, the brands that have kind of a global opportunity to, to expand revenue bases with large addressable markets that can sell their products to, you know, every demographic from kids all the way to older people. That screams, you know, certainly a Nike, things like that, with with multiple product offerings that they can consistently get uh, repeat purchases. So uh, we still love Apple, even at this price. It's still not crazy expensive. Who knows what happens? Uh, I think they report tonight, if memory serves me. So and then I like tomorrow, actually. Yeah, Mm -hmm. tomorrow. Okay. The, the, some of the newer brands that are, you know, some of them are kind of volatile. I mean, I like Roku as the media platform to get access to all these streaming devices rather than trying to, uh, other than Disney, which, which we love, to, rather than trying to bet on who's going to outspend whom and create the right content. Why not just own Roku, which is the great platform that gives us access to all of those streamers uh, in one place with a great user interface. Right. Isn't you know, that, those kinds of names look intriguing. You don't care who's providing it, right? right. But you just want the platform that right. actually delivers it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, talk- and we have, we have, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, talk to us about Tesla. I mean, we've been talking pretty incessantly about them over the last week or so. I feel like actually after a time of not talking about Tesla, too much, we've been talking about Tesla all the time. We're talking about it later in the show. Yeah. And a survey uh, of their owners, uh, owners of the cars. Uh, you like the stock, I believe, Eric. Why? You know, I, I part of it is because 25% of the floats still short. Yeah. And, I, and, and their, 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 their short thesis is getting long in the tooth, in my opinion. I mean, we're just getting ready to ramp up production in China at much cheaper production costs. So they're going to get a real benefit from that. Uh, they're going to do the same thing with a gigafactory in Europe. So this global expansion theme is literally just beginning. Shorts are 25% of the float still. They had a good quarter. I mean, they're generating free cash. They, they, they have great customer loyalty. I mean, I, I think time is running out for these folks, and they're still sticky with their, with this short interest. I mean, given the big move we've had, I'm sure some of the shorts have covered. The stock doesn't go up 20% or so in a, in a week or 10 days without having short covering be part of that. Right. But to me, it's just the EV market is so early, and we know where it's headed. 
Um, and these guys have such a lead on Audi and Porsche and everybody else. They're just going to keep benefiting right. from the GOAT being the go-to brand in an EV category. Eric Clark, thank you so much. We really appreciate you as we were breaking down all of this news and just giving us some context on some of the names that you're finding interesting. He's Portfolio Manager at Rational Dynamic Brands Fund on the phone from San Diego. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.